and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Creation and the wonderful, one of the definitive singles of 1966, Making Time. We're here today to um, play a selection of tracks from the Grapefruit Cherry Red compilation, A Slight Disturbance in My Mind, the British proto-psychedelic sounds of 1966. And I have here again David Wells, who's helped uh, compile this uh, new box set. Welcome. Yeah, hi, Jason. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I think uh, l- looking back, um, we've covered the Love, Poetry and Revolution set, which I think was all the way back in 2013. And that was about the sort of psychedelic and underground scenes from that sort of span, 66 to 72. Oh, right, yes. A couple of years after that, on Dust on the Nettles, uh, British Underground Folk. Yes. Seems a long while ago. <laughs> Then uh, we spoke, uh, I think, the first yeah. I'm a Freak Baby, yeah. 2016. <laughs> Actually, this time, we're looking at one particular year. That's right. This is 1966. Um, in the past three or four years, we've covered each year from 1967 onwards, going up to 1970. But it did seem that there was a little bit of a gap beforehand. Um, after you've got the beat and R and B boom over, and psychedelia just about to, to surface, really. So we, we've done a 1966 set, all UK and Irish bands. Uh, I think there's 84 tracks on there or something ludicrous like that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we've crammed a lot in, and obviously Making Time is, is a, it's an obvious choice, but it's a classic 1966 single. Mm-hmm. And the set is broader than what is now labelled as, as sort of freak beat, isn't it? It's got different shades of sort of early psychedelia. I mean, I, I tend to think of it as experimental pop. That that yeah. period when when the beat and R and B boom was over, and psychedelia um, hadn't quite uh, established itself. So there were kind of um, uh, a few murmurings coming over from America. There were a, a more experimental approach, I think, to making pop music, almost like a, a what next type sort of scenario, really. And I don't think there's many sort of big hits on on this set. I think the creation that was kind of one of those songs that was bubbling under at the time. Yeah, I, I think um, according to Kenny Pickett some years ago, um, he said that it, it would have sold well enough to be in the shops, but um, it was on Shelltown's label Planet, and his distributors um, Phillips didn't like the fact he was starting his own label rather than um, doing stuff actually for them. So it was hard to find, but uh, that's the trouble with independent labels, especially in the mid-60s. As you you said, this is more about that sort of experimental pop side of things. And the next track is uh, The the Holly's Clown, which is a bit more introspective. Yes, The the Holly's obviously rode on the, uh, the, the fame on the back of the beat boom and their early records, although they're good, they were fairly standard sort of beat boom creations. They mm. initially covered other people's songs. It was only around this time of the album, for certain, because in late 66, that was their first fully um, self-written album. Uh, and Clown is, is clearly a Graham Nash creation. And as he said, that's really when he started to smoke dope. And the rest of the band didn't, and they started to drift apart. But it's a great, uh, a great experimental pop song. There's an, a few Holly's albums in sort of '66, '67, where the, their songwriting really sort of blossomed. It did. The, the problem they had was that they didn't have the amount of studio time that the Beatles had. They, um, you know, I think the album before, for certain, because had been recorded over a period of nine months. 
so it, it didn't have like a homogenous sound if you like whereas mm. for certain because it's the first time it's recorded within a, an eight-week spell um, and it actually sounds like a proper album as opposed to a collection of tracks and they had that sort of tension between many of their songs in that era were also penned by other songwriters as well as opposed to some of the more album tracks which are i, th- I think there's a tension there because they wanted to write their own songs uh, but they still had to keep the hits flowing uh, and they, they had, did have an ear for a good song, definitely, with people like Graham Goldman employed to write for them. But I think also there's a, a divergence within the group, with Graham Nash being more experimental than the others, maybe. Great. And I think eventually he got fed up with it. track is um the renegades 13 women that's a bit more of that sort of heavy r&b sound it is yeah i mean that's a fascinating song we've got a few kind of um anti-nuclear songs on the 1966 which which given the era makes sense but this is the only pro-nuclear song i can think of where where the song is about a solitary male survivor after the atom bombs dropped finding a bunch of love-starred ladies at his, his disposal within the town um it's actually the song was originally um, an A-side for Bill Hay and his Comets with Rock Around the Clock on the other side. So it's an interesting song that it was written in uh, the early 50s. And then it was um, given a bit of a going over by the Renegades who were from Birmingham. Although I think they were based in Finland. Oh, so they, they were one of those bands that, that relocated onto the continent. and There was like almost like a, a second division of bands who yeah. weren't quite special enough to make it at home. Obviously, the competition was enormous, but could go somewhere like Finland, which is where the Renegades ended up. And they, they had this kind of 
extrovert showmanship thing where they, they used to wear American Civil War style cavalry uniforms on stage like Paul Revere and the Raiders mm. and in a small country um, that was enough to make them into stars. Is that a bit like with, was it the, the Rokes who, who went over to Italy? The Rokes were, yeah the Rokes were in Italy, the Renegades were in, in uh, Finland, the end did really well in Spain um, I think the Tomcats as well the Pre-July band were, mm. did quite well in Spain so yeah it was easier to make a name for yourself um, especially with the, the Swinging London thing going on and suddenly anybody with a with a with an English accent abroad was, uh, was quids in <laughs> But the Renegades that this particular track actually got a, a UK release? Yeah it was picked up by Eddie Kastner who was into songs more than bands I think so he put it out on his own label President wasn't a success obviously but it's, it's i can't imagine imagine it on the radio back in 1966 but who knows
we have the animals and outcast. And am I right that this is just pre the the new animals when Eric Eric Byrne went over to the states? But this is before then. That's right. This is kind of when the animals were falling apart. The original animals, where Alan Price had already left, and then just after uh, when Outcast was released, it coincided with the drummer John Steele handing in his notice. And then I think about four or five months later, Eric Byrne announced that they'd split up. So yeah, this is one of their final releases, basically, as, as, with, with that almost classic um, animals lineup. Like I say, um, Alan Price had gone, but uh, it's actually a, a, a recent American soul single by a duo called Eddie and Ernie. So whoever's choosing their songs, you know, definitely cast their net far and wide. This is like a, a garage rock revamp of it, but but the original sounds nothing like totally it. Totally re- recast that that track. In their own image, really, yeah. They, um, it's, if you listen to the original, it is is a sweet American soul type thing. Um, it, it's no no element of garage band sort of rock at all. They'd left Mickey Most by then. They just left Mickey Most, and instead they were with um, Tom Wilson. You know, obviously Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel's producer at that point. Yeah, and then a bit later than that, Velvet Underground, I think. So yeah, this is uh, this is kind of like almost like the midway stage between the old animals and and the new animals, which obviously um, Eric Burden pieced together over the coming months. Was this the last single release from, from the, that incarnation then? I think so. After that, he did things like Mum Had Told Me Not To Come and it had kind of like a little solo spell before he actually right. put the new animals together. But even then, you know, there's some discrepancy about whether they're actually called the animals or <laughs> the new animals. It's just now we know them as the new animals, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, he um, he he was determined to relocate to America at that point. Something to do with the plumbing, I think. He preferred American plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he was quoted as saying at the time. Right. Whereas he, <laughs> when he went to America, the plumbing worked. <laughs> I'm sure it was more than that, but yeah, I, I imagine there was quite a number of reasons he he went over to the states. Yeah. Um... I, I, I guess so. It, it's difficult to know exactly. I know Chas Chandler always used to say that it was it was acid that changed everything. That that Eric was taking that, and the rest of the band were really boozers, and they just went in separate directions. Although obviously Chas Chandler eventually <laughs> managed um, Jimi Hendrix anyway, so uh, it worked out okay for him. But uh, yeah, that that according to him, that's what split the band up, and that's. Oak Burden went off basically on his own and put together an entirely new lineup with people like uh, Zoot Money, Vic Briggs, those, those people. Esoteric Records, link, obviously part, part of Cherry Red, have, have also got new Eric Burden box set. That's right. That's um, that late 60s stuff when they recorded albums every three months, it seems, for MGM. Double albums, single albums, whatever. Um, so I think all that has been bundled up into one package. Treat me this away. I've been left out of everything, each and every way.
group and a track that I wasn't familiar with but you can hear that Belfast sound that them sound a little bit the loving kind answers please that's right it, it initially came out on the, an album called Ireland's Greatest Sounds which was basically those bands who'd followed them um, at the Maritime Hotel um, so this is another bunch of Belfast teenagers <laughs> the band are mainly of interest because the drummer Beachy Colclough mm subsequently became a therapist to people like Elton John, Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Jackson, uh, which is something you don't, <laughs> a conclusion you don't really expect from somebody who's in a, in a Northern Ireland um, teenage R&B group. But uh, yeah, he's, he's quite a, a legendary uh, figure now. Um, plenty about him on the internet if, you, if you're curious, but uh, it's, it's an odd tale. But uh, mainly, though, this song's of interest because it's an early Alex Harvey song that wasn't recorded by Harvey himself. Oh, I certainly didn't know that. Gosh. I don't know how they picked up on it, the band. I can only assume it was via a publishing company because, like I say, Alex Harvey himself didn't seem to record it. Um, but, yeah, it's a staggeringly sort of raw song. Yeah. Body White didn't come out as a single, really, but... Um, it's a shame they didn't really do anything after that, the band.
the dust comes down, my friend. What you gonna do when the dust comes down, my friend? What you gonna do when the dust comes down with a million bodies lying around? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Answers, please. Well, you know that strung him from the sky, my friend. Well, you know that strung him from the sky, my friend. Oh, yeah. Well, you know that strung him from the sky. How to make your wives and children die. Oh, yeah. 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 Answers, please. Well, how about the gamma rays, my friend? I said, how about the gamma rays, my friend? Oh, yeah. Well, how about the gamma rays in agony? You can live for days, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Answers, please. Well, what should I do in the danger zone, my friend? Well, what should I do in the danger zone, my friend? Oh, Lord. Well, what should I do in the danger zone when the flesh is peeling on my bones? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just please, yeah, yeah. Now, Lord, how we gonna make them stop, oh, yeah Yeah, I said, Lord, how we gonna make them fools stop, oh, yeah Oh, yeah Well, Lord, how we gonna make them stop Before them killers let it drop, oh, yeah Yeah, yeah, I'm just please. Please, please, I said yeah, 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 give me your answers, please, 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 give me your answers, 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 answers. Please. Next we have the Moody Blues and We're Broken, a gorgeous period musically for the band, but commercially kind of terrible, that that period where they just couldn't get a hit in, in 66. No, again, we talked earlier about the, the Hollies, and sort of different trains of thought, and I think the Moody Blues had the same. Denny Lane said that they should cut back on the live work and go into the studio and make another album, whereas the band's management just wanted them to gig and make money on the road. So they um, they couldn't really follow up Go Now, um, but they did, in, in mid-'66, they did cut tracks for, that were supposed to be a second album that was provisionally entitled Look Out, and it had things like uh, Tim Hardin's Hang On To A Dream on there. Yeah. Uh, and this song, We're Broken, which is an original song, but it didn't come out because Danny Lane quit a month or two later. But it, it's a really kind of interesting... Uh, it's a stepping stone between what they'd been doing and, and what they would do after Justin Hayward and John Lodge came in. And of course, Danny Lane was just about to start the Electric String Band as well, who were 
were very interesting. So yeah, a really nice track. You can kind of hear that early string band. Yep, I think so. Yeah, I, I was staggered when I first heard this track that it should just not see the light of day when it does give you a, a, a different feel for how the band were progressing. Uh, but there we go, such is life, I guess, in the mid-60s when there was so much talent around that a lot of things did just get lost. Did this um, did this track see a release as part of the, the 50th anniversary of the Magnificent Moody's, or is this kind of, is this totally new to this set? Um, it's only, no, it, it was the... Uh, I think it was the 50th anniversary, but it's certainly a fairly recent um, two-CD expansion of their their early album. So it has come out in the last two or three years, I think. Um, but the trouble is, you'd have to be a Moody Blues fan to actually pick that up. The advantage about a multi-artist set is that you can introduce yes. things that people otherwise wouldn't discover. And, and We're Broken is a perfect example of something that deserves wider exposure, but at the moment it's only really known if you're kind of an early moody blues obsessive yeah i mean i i, I love that that particular time time in the band you know uh, tracks like boulevard de la madeleine yeah. that... but not hits um, no so i can understand something like denny lane thinking well i'm gonna to have to move away in order to to sort of progress my career mm. uh, and uh, and then of course he, he did the electric string band and they were basically the the forerunners of the electric light orchestra. He yeah. still didn't really get hits even then. It was Colin Blunstone who had a hit with um, "Say You Don't Mind," but uh, Danny Lane's band itself didn't really get too much attention mm-hmm. at the time.
Next, we have a, a track that I played in my very early days on the Strange Brew, and it's the score and great version of Please Please Me. Yeah, I still don't. I interviewed um, the guitarist some years ago, Kenny White, who'd been in uh, Jimmy Powell and the Five Dimensions, and I'm still not sure whether, entirely sure whether it's a serious record or whether they're just having a bit of fun with uh, with all the Yardbirds and Stones guitar quotes and the closing feedback, but. Um, hmm. Yeah, so they were basically um, a Manchester R&B group called Blues Council with Kenny White added and a guy called Eddie Lamb, yeah, who later joined The Warrior in Kind, who did a single on Piccadilly. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, an odd little record. And again, something that was oh, something that was included on the second volume of Chocolate Soup for Diabetics about 40 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um uh, which is a sobering thought. I think it was 1981 it came out on that, and suddenly, you know, it was it was being collected by by psychedelic aficionados. Um, but whether it's serious or not, it's a really good record. Yeah, it's it's one of those um, handful of tracks that were Beatle covers, but were released on Decca as well. <laughs> That's right. There's a loose ends version of Taxman. Um, mm. Yeah, I think fairly common in those days for people to wait for the new Beatles album to come out or to get an advanced copy of it and decide, right, they're not going to release that as a single, we'll have a go at it. Um, but in this case, they, they didn't wait for the new new album to come out, uh, Revolver or anything like that. They went back right to the early days, you know, Please Please Me, the second single, isn't it? So, yeah, like I say, I don't know if it's facetious or not, but um, it, it certainly works. Uh, and after so many years of hearing the original it, it's still quite fun to hit, listen to this mm. and you say in the sleeve notes that rod stewart w- was a member of the band in the early days that, i mean this had been no no rod stewart wasn't in this band he was in the early fifth uh, five dimensions but he got but he'd gone by the time that, that ah, okay. uh, jimmy powell put together a new band with uh with kenny white who then left to become sound technician for the creation right. so it all kind of goes round if you like but uh, hmm. no um this is i think the third um five dimensions lineup whereas rod was in one of the early lineups yeah and didn't play on uh, my boy lollipop no. <laughs> <laughs> instead it's a rod stewart lookalike that, apparently that's why the confusion has arisen oh. over the years that they had this scrawny kind of uh blonde guy who looked a bit like rod and so people remembering in the studio said yeah that must have been rod stewart but it was just some lookalike <laughs> that had been recruited after he left uh five dimensions Last night I said 
Now we have Manfred Manning, you're my girl, and that was the, the Paul Jones had, and Mike Vickers had left the band by then, and Mike Darbo and Klaus Foreman were in place. That's right, yeah. The, the Manfred Mann are one of those bands that are always overlooked. They just, you know, people remember the singles, but um, they did have quite a bit of um, songwriting ability in their lineup. I mean, the drummer Brian Brian Hug had already written "Mystery of Better uh, Better Man Than I" for the Yardbirds. And this is a really good experimental song. Came out in October '66. You're my girl on the As Is album, but it's uh, a really advanced track for that time. Quite, quite an odd, odd little thing. And then, of course, they went on to do things like Funniest Gig, which are really kind of psychedelic. But, but people kind of say that, generally yeah. ignore them. Yeah, I've got um, one of those. I don't think it's available now, but one of those collections of all those albums from the Fontana period in the late 60s. And, and right. it, I mean, it's a bit of a hit and miss, but when the band wrote their own material and they were really on it, it was as good as any anything in the era. Yeah, I, I interviewed Mike Darbo some years ago and he was talking about how he came to write Build Me Up Buttercup and how he divided his songs into two categories, the hits and the good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> he probably wouldn't put it quite like that if he was on the radio, but um, that, that's basically what it was. He would he would do something for the head and something for the heart, as he put it. I think so. So he would write these three minute pop songs, but they wouldn't be recorded by Manfred Mann. And then Manfred Mann would do a cover. Yes, it, it must have been a pretty schizophrenic existence, and I can understand why he got fed up with it in the end, and he, he signed a a songwriting deal with Immediate instead. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just one of those weird little tales where they had all this talent internally and they went outside for, for songs, even though Mike Darbo could write pop hits. And You're My Girl, that's got... We've talked earlier about that experimental pop sound and this has got that experimentation. All I can say is that it doesn't sound anything like you'd expect a Man for Man album track in 1966 to sound. It's, uh, mm. it's I guess, they thought... Oh, it's a Man for Man, sorry, Man for Man and Mike Hugg's song rather than Mike Darbo's song. And presumably they just thought, well, we've got 35 minutes on an album to mess around with. We don't have to just have three-minute pop songs. Um, and yeah, this is quite... This almost sounds like something, an almost early Zappa song. Mm. Yeah, if they're just let loose in the studio. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know... I don't know what the incentive was, just to stretch out maybe in the studio, just to... Take advantage of the the LP format, but um, no, it wouldn't have been something they'd considered as a single. Yeah. 
And next we have Arthur Brown. Uh, don't tell me. And that was uh, that. That seemed to have got a, a release in France. It had a release in France. It was on an EP that the, the French label Barclay issued. Although weirdly, they had a naked Jane Fonda on the cover rather than the picture of Arthur Brown. I don't know why they would choose to do that. But no, it, it was from a film starring um, Jane Fonda uh, and produced by Roger Vardimo, her partner. Not quite sure on this. I mean, it's always been said that Arthur Brown was backed by the Arthur Brown set on this, but it's actually a French band called The Sharks. So it's really kind of a solo thing, mm. even though he had a he held down a residency at a club in the Orange Rouge. So yeah, an interesting little oddity, um, not really psychedelic, but a forerunner mm. of, of him coming to prominence a year or two later, really on the underground circuit. Um, and again, just a, a really strong song and a kind of really pulsating performance as well by the band, whoever whoever the Sharks were. Um, <laughs> You know, yeah, you never know. It, it, it may have been Mick, Mick Jones moonlighting or something. It's always possible because Arthur Brown isn't going to go into the studio and say, "Hi, who are you guys?" He's just going <laughs> to he's just going to be matched with whoever's there. Mm. So yeah, it could be Mick Jones, um, but then again, it could be anyone really. Yeah, yeah, it's got that m- muscular R and B thing. It is very muscular. Yeah, it, it's it, like I say, it's really pulsating. It does move along. It's a really exciting track. It must be relatively hard to find out. I was having a look at the sleeve notes, and I'm not sure Arthur's even credited. No, I don't think he is, no. Um, it was like a, a kind of movie soundtrack EP release, um, and they wouldn't have pushed Arthur Brown because nobody knew who he was. So there wasn't there wasn't any uh, incentive for them to, to put his details down on, on the sleeve, as far as I'm concerned. The film might have done well, in which case they had a couple of tracks from the sound from the uh, from the soundtrack. So obviously hoping for a hit on that basis. And like I say, Jane Fonda on the cover.
following Arthur Brown, we have Graham Bond organization. You've got a have love babe, but that's a that's actually a, a demo version. This is a, a, a considerably different demo version, slightly creepy in that it really kind of has his vocal up front and yeah. the, the backing is more skeletal. So yeah, it's quite an interesting discovery. Um, the single itself came out on page one. Um, it's weird to think of Larry Page thinking, oh, we could have a hit with Graham Bond. Um, he didn't. Uh, I think the single sold about 1,200 copies. Uh, this was the lineup of the Graham Bond organisation with Dick Hextall Smith and the young John Heisman, who sadly passed away two or three yes. years ago, I think. Yes. Uh, but I think Heisman was was very young at this point. This is late 66, uh, I think. I think Heisman eventually got fed up with like um, a lack of discipline of the band, and he he left uh, to form. Uh, well, eventually he, he formed Coliseum with Dick Hextall Smith. But yeah, this um, interesting song. Um, you wonder what would have happened if if Larry Page had had a hit with it. Whether it was more <laughs> in his style, but uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an, uh, both both the the demo and the the finished version are really strong. Got that jazz R&B feel but there's that element of experimentation again yeah I would yes I would say that this is almost people musicians of that era looking for a new direction not not doing the same thing they've done in 64 or whatever with the jazzy R&B but trying to move it on a little bit because by this point Ginger Baker had quit to form Cream I mean a few months after this Graham Bond was at the, uh, the 14 hour Technicolor Dream Apparently he arrived too late and too dishevelled to play, but uh, there was that kind of feeling in the water that uh, things were changing, and and this does have definitely a more a more kind of late sixty six, early sixty seven feel than what he was doing a couple of years earlier. That lineup didn't last that long. No, I I think Graham Bond was getting into a few difficulties by that point, and I think musicians who were playing with him got fed up. Really, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. Obviously, he died tragically a few years later, but he dis- decided he was the son of Alistair Crowley, I think, and uh, dabbled in black magic. Um, so I-, I think John Heisman was definitely an organizer. I mean, I worked with him on the Coliseum box set a few years ago, and he was, I mean, Coliseum was probably one of the few bands who relaxed on, on uh, when they were on tour by reading the Financial Times. <laughs> So, so yeah, this was two worlds colliding in a way, if you like. And I think John Heisman, especially, has pretty soon got fed out with the, this disorganisation. This <laughs> no, no pun intended. You're gonna have love to make it, baby. You've got a heart, we'll try to break it. You got a heart, you can mend it. I'm telling you, you got a mind, you can send it. You're gonna spend all your life and time with me, baby. And in just no time at all, we'll both be free. You know I'll always love you, babe. You know I'll always love you, babe. You know we're all gonna have love, babe You know we're all gonna have love, babe Till the end of time End of time Till the end of time 
got the guts, you can take it. Telling you if you're a balloon, they can't pop it. Telling you if you're in the ground, you can't stop it. You're gonna spend all your life and time with me, baby. And in just no time at all, we'll both be free now. Have love, baby. Yeah, come on. You know I'll always have love, baby. You know I'll always love you, baby. You know we're all gonna have love, baby. Yeah, end of time. Till the end of time. Till the end of time. Love is beyond time. Beyond time. Now we have another of those key bands of the 60s, especially of that post-Beatles generation and uh, the Zombies indication. And that was, the again, 1966, but a period where the band couldn't get a hit, certainly in the UK and the US anyway. June 66, this came out. And by that point, I mean, they'd they'd started off with two absolute classics, She's Not There and um, Tell Her No. But... Yeah, I wouldn't say they lost their way exactly because they were no. still making great records. But the idea that Indication might have been a hit single is nonsensical. Mm. You know, the second half of it is really, as it said in one review at the time, sounds like early Beatles, ends like the whirling dervishes uh, when they go madly Arabic and completely potty. Well, that's not going to get you a hit record, sadly, but it is a good uh, good track. And um, I think a year or so later, by the time they were making uh, Odyssey and Oracle, they'd kind of got to a musical point where that made sense to them but this does sound like them looking for a new direction and not quite being sure of where to go in a nutshell this 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 shows the the transition of of the sound really because it starts off you know sounding 64 65 and then towards the end really pushes the sound forward it's almost like a two-parter you know um Pressed into service as a, as a two and a half minute pop song. Uh, I can only assume they put two different ideas together the way that mm. songwriters do sometimes, because the beginning and the end, as you say, have got no bear no relation to each other. It's not that you're wrong. It's just that I'm right. I don't want to be tied down every day and every night.
next we have uh, the Reaction Advertising Man. But again, that's that wasn't released at the time, was it? No, it didn't didn't come out at the time. It was recorded in 1966 by a band who were near Chesterfield, Sheffield, that area, and they were initially called the Gear. Which I mean, you can get much more of a beat boom friendly <laughs> name than the Gear. Yeah. So they they changed that by '66 to the Reaction, and they recorded a couple of songs at a demo studio in Nottingham. Um, but a year or two later, they became Shape of the Rain, who went on to do an absolutely fantastic 1971 album called Riley Riley Wooden Waggett, mm-hmm. um, which is, to me, is like a, a lost power pop classic, if you like, in the same vein as the Beatles or Badfinger or Rocking Horse, something like that. Yeah. But this is them in 66, when they were trying to do that kind of who kinks um, conversation piece type song, really. Um and it's good. The guy who was, sang the songs and mainly wrote them, Keith Riley, was a really talented songwriter. Uh, and this will form part of like a three CD Shape of the Rain set that we're putting out on Grapefruit in the coming months. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, re- just a really good band, great sound, great songs. And yet, for some reason, they didn't make it. You've chronicled much of this, but um, there's all those recordings that were recorded in demo studios at the time and didn't get a release. and over the last few decades has, has all come out now and it's just brilliant to see. I, I think so. It depends what you want. Some people will say, well, this is sounds like a demo studio recording. It's t- been taken from acetate. You know, where's uh, where's the 16-track the Abbey Road recordings? <laughs> but So it depends on your, on your point of view. If you have imagination, and I think it's amazing that these things turn yeah. up and you can say, if that had been taken to Abbey Road, if they'd had somebody yeah. producing it as opposed to just basically playing live in a demo studio... On, on very cheap equipment, then then who knows what could have happened. Um, but so much of it is, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And sadly for them, they weren't. Mm. Or having good good management as well, of course, <laughs> would have helped. <laughs> Did they ever get much commercial success in the early seventies? Or no, they made an album for RCA Neon, which really it should have been on a mainstream label rather than an underground progressive label because they are three minute pop songs. Um, but no, they staggered on to about the mid-70s, I think, but they never got another deal after the RCA, RCA Neon put out their album and then collapsed about six weeks later. So they didn't really didn't really um, even get the chance to market it. So yeah, they didn't, no, they didn't, uh, they had one single after that, which under the truncated name of Shape, and that was it, Gosh. nothing more. I heard some of the demos, and if you can imagine like, Chris Bell coming, mm. you know, big star coming from <laughs> Sheffield. <laughs> you know, that, that's how it sounds. But uh, as I say, you need good management. You need to be in the right place at the right time. You need somebody who hears something in you that maybe others mm. don't hear. And they just didn't get that. Um, but that RCA Neon album is definitely well worth yeah. seeking yeah. out.
we have Downliner Sect, uh, Why Don't You Smile Now, and Peers of Yardbirds, Pretty Things, Stones, etc. But the song itself has got a, quite an interesting backstory. It is a weird story um, that uh, Why Don't You Smile Now is the first song written by Lou Reed and John Cale together when, when they were working for Pickwick, um, the budget label kind of thing. Uh, and then it was covered by um, a band who were Lou Reed's friends from a uh, uni- local university called the All Night Workers. But they made it into a Righteous Brothers-style kind of blue-eyed soul song. Um, but fortunately, um, in England, the, the song was assigned to Campbell Connelly, who also represented the songs of the Downliner sect. And because of that, mm. the sect picked up on the song. Just a com- complete coincidence, really, that, that it should be handled by their own publishers, that song. And it was on the third album, uh, The Rock Sects In. Uh, it's also a single in Sweden and Finland as well. But, um, yeah, I think John Cale described the tune as all Louis, 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 Louis changes. <laughs> and the first song that Lou and I wrote, One Drunken Evening. Um, but irrespective of its background, it's it's a great song and a great performance. It's a really kind of clanging um, uh, garage rock version of it. As I say, uh, it, it's only really because of the uh, the Lou Reed, John Cale, pre-Velvets um, thing that it's been pe- picked up on in recent years. But it's a fantastic record in its own right. That was that period where Lou and John were kind of almost writing to order, <laughs> just just knocking songs out. I, th- I think all that stuff is fascinating. It's a bit like 10CC when they were working for Castanets and Cats mm. in the late 60s. That that discipline is sometimes good for you, that you have to write in a certain style, you have to make it three, less than three minutes, you have to make it sound good on the radio. And that I'm sure that discipline enabled them to do uh, more interesting stuff later on. And, and this is one of a pair of track, downliner set tracks on, on the set, isn't it? Yeah, the other one is Glendora, which again is the downliner set making a completely different song sound their own. Glendora was a hit for... Perry Como. Oh, gosh. And it's this really kind of, yeah, it's this really kind of cheese ball. You remember Delaware that he did yeah. as well, which is just like a punning thing, you know, and um, Glendora is about somebody falling in love with a showroom dummy. <laughs> um, but the, the the remake by Down on the Sect sounds nothing like Perry Como's, you'll be glad to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you smile now? 
David we've got to our final track and you know very fitting to play this at, at the end and it's uh, Disturbance by The Move and that that being their B-side from what I think is, was that their first single Night of Fear? That's right it was the B-side of Night of Fear apparently Roy Wood wanted it as the A-side but he was outvoted by Tony Secunda their manager yeah that, that's where the title of the, the box set comes from a slight disturbance in my mind is a lyric from Disturbance mm. again a, a band with so much talent that they basically could have done anything they wanted but Night of Fear is a more commercial song than this so in that sense Tony Secunda was right yeah I mean the, uh, the final night of 1966 the move played on the same bill as the Pink Floyd at the Roundhouse um, the Psychedelica Mania all night rave so this is kind of just as the dawn broke on Psychedelia really December 66 it came out and the move ended that year mm with the Pink Floyd, who were like the underground darlings of their time. And within a month or two of that, Psychedelia would become a household word. It's the final third of this track where things get, get you know, get go mad, even even more so than the, the, the zombies indication. I I would guess that Roy Wood was trying to, to have that kind of hammer horror type ending. Mm. You know, that kind of really kitsch over the top stuff. Uh, and I would guess that was the idea of the track pretty much falling apart, if you like, in going into sound effects, um, sort of uh, distorted vocals, et cetera, et cetera. But that also predates um, what would happen in Psychedelia a few months later, I think. Um, that idea that you can do anything, really. There's no kind of rules anymore. Mm. It's got that, for me, it's got a bit of that hint of madness that, that Roy uh, went back to with Cherry Blossom Clinic. Yeah, I think Roy Wood has always said that he didn't take drugs at all, but he was a very keen story writer when he was at school. And some of these songs were basically things he'd written as a schoolboy, um, put into song format. I don't know how true that is, but um, 
cherry blossom clinic um here we go around the lemon tree is another one which is basically a, a little comic mm. song uh, very similar to what jeff lynn was doing with the idol race mm. This uh, a slight disturbance in my mind box set is out at the, the very end of uh, January and again on on the uh, grapefruit imprint of Cherry Red. That's right. Yes, it's out on grapefruit. I think it's the thirty first of January. Um, available in all good record shops or those that's still around anyway. Um, mm. And plenty of internet sources, I'm sure. There's been there's some new new unearthed material on it. Kim Fowley related. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, Partly the story of psychedelia coming to Britain in 1966 is Kim Fowley coming over here uh, for several months and working with bands like um, The Inbetweens and uh, a Manchester band called The Outrage. Now, a lot of those tapes have been lost for years, so fortunately um, they've turned up Mm. in the archives and we've used two or three of them, including an extended version of um, an early Inbetweens single. So, yeah, the, the the two outrage tracks certainly have never been released before. Um, and they didn't really understand what was going on either. I mean, Kim Fowley just used to tell British bands to act psychedelically, according to Jackie McCauley. And they didn't really know what he meant. <laughs> but he would give them songs to cover and they would dutifully record it because they thought they were going to be, uh, you know, superstars. They thought that Kim Fowley, Kim Fowley, the first man ever to employ the word psychedelics to promote a record. Um and they thought, this guy's a bit odd, but <laughs> he's got a track record um, and he might make us into stars. So, yeah, there's a few few things from that taken direct from the original Fowley Master tapes that were on this, this compilation for the first time ever. That that very much resonates with uh, Jim Lee, who was, uh, was saying the same sort of thing to me when he was talking about that early period of Slade. Yeah, I think Noddy Holder has said that um, they saw this... this um, enormously tall skinny man with a massive hat in the crowd and they said immediately this guy's a freak <laughs> <laughs> but then he wrote people let's freak out for you know the freaks of nature or, or the other them or whatever you want to call them um and he also gave um the outrage songs like a different way of eating chocolate cake <laughs> which i don't forget at the time he just recorded a version of they're coming to take me away ha ha for the english market yeah so he he was looking for this kind of oddball um, uh, novelty hit, if you like. Uh, but then he went back to America. So uh, you know he wrote Portobello Road with Kim uh, with um, Cat Stevens at that point. Um, he was everywhere without quite having that hit record over here. But yeah, it's the same with with Simon Napier Bell, who went over to America, came back and told John's children they were going to be the first ever psychedelic group, and they didn't know what the hell he was talking about. So, I mean, all that is covered in the sleeve notes, etc., for this release. And it is an interesting tale. That that 1966 year is kind of the stepping stone almost to what what, what would come. Um, so it is a fascinating 12 months, definitely. Marvellous. Let's play um, Disturbance by the Move to, to close the show, and uh, I'd highly recommend this fantastic box set which gives a a real uh, window in, into the the music scene in the the UK and Ireland in 1966 and and thank you for your time David oh, you're welcome always a pleasure
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's been almost 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.